0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org.
1: Good morning, Redeemer. Josh, this is Matthew chapter 26. Sorry, I just printed it on my phone. Matthew 26, the anointing of Jesus, or as I like to call it, the last lunch. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume.
2: I tried to keep quiet, and I don't even think they looked my way. All attention was on the meal and their friends. It was always like this when Jesus came. The room was filled with light and laughter. They just glowed with the joy of being with him. I don't think anyone else noticed me, though Jesus acknowledged me with a subtle nod and maybe a smile, like he knew that any more obvious movement might make me think again. It was that silent consent that gave me the nerve I needed. I inched my way through the crowd, around the table to where he reclined like a prince. The alabaster flask had been my mother's, a gift from an extravagant admirer. She'd never opened it. She said it was a single-use thing. Once the neck was snapped, that was it. She kept saying it was far too grand for us. She'd laughed that maybe royalty would one day pass through Bethany. Maybe we would find a use for it then. Well, now that royalty was here. We had generous offers for it. I didn't believe it at first. It was more than we brought in in a year. But somehow it didn't seem right, and I knew there'd be a time that I'd know when it would be the right time. That time was now. I steadied my nerves, moved to Jesus's shoulder. I was struck by the aromas he always seemed to have. Something of the wild, like open fields and the wide sea, but edged with the feeling of coming home. In that moment, I felt my doubts rise again. Who did I think I was? I mean, this was the Messiah, anointed by God. Surely, he was more anointed than I could imagine. So what was I doing? Then I recalled his words about being crucified. Though no one seemed to take him seriously. Maybe this had something to do with that. I hesitated and he gave me this half look again, reassuring me. And in that moment, I knew this was the very least he deserved. He was worth every denarius. He is royalty, and this perfume was fit for this king. I snapped the neck of the flask and the pungent ointment flowed down over his head. There was less than I imagined, and quite sticky, like the perfume wouldn't be washed off any time soon. That's when I felt a surge of relief, like I had released some precious burden. Jesus looked me full in the face and smiled, the most wonderful smile i had ever seen. Then I felt the stares from around the table and the silence just before the room erupted.
1: When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her.
0: Excellent, thank you guys for that. When preparing for this, it got me thinking, what is an extravagant gift? Um, I went to the, the source of or the second source of knowledge, Google, and uh, had a look at what are some of the most extravagant gifts anyone has ever given. Mike Tyson hit the list back in 2013. He bought his then wife a 24 carat gold bathtub worth approximately two million dollars. Uh, Father's Day is coming up, and in case there's any mothers or kids out there looking for inspiration, uh, back in 2012, uh, Beyonce bought Jay-Z a private jet, so maybe that could (laughs) make the list. (laughs) Or the most expensive gift ever given was by Emperor Shah Jahan, who spent the equivalent of $827 spent 22 years, and used 20,000 people to build the Taj Mahal as a tomb for his beloved late wife. I think, actually, we know a lot about when you love someone, you like to give them extravagant gifts. And I think this is what we see in this scene today. First of all, I thought I'd start off by giving us a little bit of context. What is going on in this situation? Well, we know it happened at Bethany. It's just outside Jerusalem. Uh, We know it's also written in the uh, John's Gospel. Uh, And in John 12, we can read that happened the day before Palm Sunday, which would have been six days before Jesus uh, was crucified. Uh, Matthew tells it happens at Simon the leper's house. Although, again, from our account in John, we know that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were there hosting the meal. Um, And we believe that these were most likely actually Simon's children. And so that would where you'd have siblings uh, hosting together under one roof would have been at their father's home. Uh, John also tells us it was Mary who poured out the ointment, and so that's helpful. We know many stories about Mary. Um, We also know that it's exceptionally valuable, as uh, we heard in the poem earlier. Actually, it's worth 300 denarii, John tells us, a denarii being about the day rate for a labourer, which in today's terms would be about £30,000. Hopefully, this helps us just grasp some of what's happening at this moment. what can we take away from it? I guess is the challenge for today. So, over the next kind of 20 minutes, I'm gonna break down kind of the three different opinions of people in this scene. We've got the disciples, we've got Jesus, and we've got Mary. And we're gonna look at each of them and see what we can take away. Firstly, let's look at the disciples. I think this is an example of where the disciples completely miss the picture. <laughs> This isn't the first case they've done it either. We can read in the Gospels many accounts of when the disciples didn't quite know what was going on. Another example, you can look at Luke 9, where James and John want to call down fire because someone insulted them. (laughs) You can have a look at when they go to feed the 4,000 people. I mean, they've just seen Jesus previously feed 5,000 people. And yet in Mark, you can read that they say, how can we feed these people with bread in this desolate place? They've just seen the same miracle done on a grander scale, and they've already forgotten it. Or possibly my favorite is the transfiguration, where you see Jesus, he's transfigured. Moses appears on one side. Elijah appears on the other side. And then Peter suggests making some tents. (laughs) You think, what was he thinking? (laughs) We see that Jesus' face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, and Peter's around looking for some sticks to start putting a shelter together. Well, I'm, I'm not here today just to take cheap shots at people holier than me, but I bring this up for a reason. If the apostles can sometimes miss the point, then I think we've got to, with humility, realize we can as well. So I think... To look at this specific situation, where did they miss miss the point here? Well, I think it's because they focused too much on the generosity of the gift. They looked at the money of it, not the motivation of it. So this reminds me a bit of a friend of mine. uh, I'd invited him to my wedding last year, and he thanked me for inviting me, and then asked me why I'd invited him. He said, surely you're spending money on food, you know, on a bigger venue to host more guests. He's like, imagine if you invited X less people and then you'd have X more amount of money. You could go on a nicer honeymoon. You could invest in your house. You could buy more gifts for Esther. (laughs) When I talked about a wedding, I had had the motivation of I love you and I want you to be there and celebrate this special day with me. He just saw the money. And I think we see the exact same in this situation here. The disciples saw the money and thought, Oh, with that much money, we could do X greater outcome. We could feed this many people. We could do something else with it. Whereas I think Jesus saw the heart. He actually saw, look, no, 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 it's not about what the outcome is. It's about the motivation behind it. I think this is something that's so challenging to us as a church. How many things do we do out of the motivation of results? rather than out of a love for Jesus. And I mean, I feel guilty of this one as well. I run the tech team on a Sunday. We sit there every week streaming the service, looking at the number of viewers going up or down, what's worked well, what's worked poorly. Can I get too lost in the numbers and not in the fact that we're here to share Jesus with our friends and family? I think this is the thing I feel really challenged on from the disciples. Do we get too lost in all about actions, outcomes, and numbers, and not enough about heart for Jesus. And that's my point one. It's got to be heart over outcome. I think the second person we look at is Jesus in this one. I think we've got to see how he responded to this situation. I think the first thing we can learn is that Jesus is someone who looks to the future. He sees that this moment is preparing him for his death yet to come, He also makes the point that wherever this gospel is going to be spread, this story will go. He knows that the gospel is going to be spread to the ends of the earth. He sees that already. And I think this has got to be hugely comforting to us that we know that we come to worship a God who knows what's yet to come. I think this is a theme we can read many areas in the Bible. If you were to turn to Matthew 6, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food, and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single uh, hour to the span of his life? I mean, I feel challenged by that. How many of us worry about things outside of our control? How many of us waste time and energy dwelling on things we cannot change, rather than praying to a God who can? Another verse I'm sure many of you have heard quoted before is 1 Peter 5 verse 7, uh, where it says, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, The Bible wasn't written in verses, and 1 Peter, verse 7, is actually the second half of a sentence that starts in verse 6, where it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. If you want to know how to stop worrying about the future, the answer is to put your future in the hands of someone who has control. And that's not an easy thing to do, but I think this is what we can see from this verse. Verse 6 is a command to submit yourselves unto the hand of God, of which verse 7 is the result. Then you will have, your anxieties will be cast on him. The stresses of you worrying about tomorrow, will you trust him for tomorrow so you don't need to worry? I think another thing we can look at uh, seeing Jesus' response here is that he loves personal relationship. As I mentioned previously, Jesus says he sees a heart and says that she's done a beautiful thing. Again, this is another biblical theme that we see throughout the Bible with many biblical characters. If you look back at Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt and prepared them in the promise, for the promised land, in Exodus 33, he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us from here. You look at this person who led the people, but he was a person who led the people by dwelling in the presence of God. David, um, I mean... Another man who has got many flaws, but again is considered to be one of the greatest kings of Israel, often described as a worshiper of God. He says in Psalm 27, verse 4 One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. I mean, that's someone who loves spending time with God. I mean, David, when he sinned, his first thing was God, was don't leave me. <laughs> you know, i tell you the consequences, but don't leave me. I think this is a common thread. So many influential Bible characters are those who love dwelling in the presence of God. I think that's my next challenge for us today as a church. Are we a church that values and seeks the presence of God? Do we understand that that is what makes us unique as a church? Um, I was having a, a friend with another, con, uh, another friend recently, and we were chatting, and he was talking about how he struggles with all religions. Why can't they just band together and work together? He's like, you know, you all just kind of worshipping and trying to appease your gods. Why can't you unite under that? And I said, I think you've missed the point. <laughs> I said, my first response to that would be, I don't try and worship and appease my God. I have a God who comes and meets me. And it's, I'm not saved because of what I do to appease him. I'm saved because he came down and saved me. I think that's totally different. I have a God that I don't just do actions and hope he appreciates them and hope he likes them and hope that makes me okay with him. I have a God who says, I want to be in relationship with you. I think we've got to understand that that's different. I think we've got to show that with how we live as well. When people look at our lives, they see someone who just does actions to try and appease their God, or do they see someone who has a deeper, meaningful relationship? I think this leads us on great to Mary. As I said before, we've seen uh, Mary and Martha before. In Luke 10, um, we read about Jesus being hosted again by Mary and Martha. Martha's running around preparing dinner, trying to get everything ready. Mary's just sitting at his feet. Uh, I mean, it's a famous story. I'm sure you've all heard it before. Jesus, uh, you know, Martha says to Jesus, "Oh, can you get my sister to come help me? And Jesus says... Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Again, we see another character who missed the point. Actually, Martha was more worried about preparing dinner. And I sometimes worry that this actually is... I sometimes think when we're more worried about preparing dinner it's because we're more worried about how people are going to see us by our preparation than about our guests. <laughs> I often think on, when me and Esther have people over on a Sunday, I want to like, cook up a nice roast or cook a feast and people to come around and go, wow, look at the food we had there. But sometimes I think if I spent more time in the kitchen faffing around over all the food than actually just spending time with the guests I'm invited over. I sometimes wonder whether we see that more here. Actually, we see an example of Martha who is more worried about who she is compared to Mary who's more worried about who Jesus is. I think it's got to be another place where it challenges us as Christians. How do we act as church? Do we actually we come here and try and, again, serve well you know do we worry about the coffee setting up lights on the stage or or do we come and think actually we are here to connect with Christ we're here to be a light to everyone else around us I think the other thing that we see from Mary's response is she understood the value of Jesus's death we see that Jesus says Mary has done a beautiful thing in pouring this ointment on my body she has done it to prepare me for burial and we've got to point, uh, notice what a significant moment this is. This is pointing towards an Old Testament image of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb comes from the story of Exodus. So I'm sure you, many of you know Moses is, uh, goes up to Pharaoh, asks Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh says, no, he casts a plague. Pharaoh's, he goes back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, no, cast a plague. This happens back and forth, back and forth until the twelfth time when the plague is that the firstborn son of every person in Egypt will be killed unless they sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost. And then from every year after that, the Jewish people were called to select an unblemished lamb, and it would be sacrificed to remind them of this time where death was coming for them, but because of the sacrifice, they avoided it. The lamb would be chosen... Six days before Passover, and it would be anointed with oil. I mean, that's uh, (laughs) feels like a familiar picture at this point. Six days before, it would be chosen an unblemished lamb, and it would be anointed with oil. This is what we're seeing with Jesus here in this moment. And again, this is another biblical theme that in case that felt like too much of a leap for you, we can read in 1 Peter 1.19, but the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish or spot. We can read in John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5.7 cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump that you are really unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed I mean, this is a crystal clear imagery here we are once again pointed back to that we are sinners who are deserving of death it is coming for us but because of a sacrifice made on our behalf we are let free if you are A non Christian today, like this is the opportunity, if this is what we say as a church. We say we point out that God we know that God created the world. The world was fallen. It's sinful. I'm sure all of you can look at things that have happened, the news this week, struggles at work, excellent friends, you know that we live in a broken world. Actually, Lord, we've all fallen short and that we have this opportunity, a moment to say, actually no, God has come down he wants to redeem me. He wants to restore me. and He wants to be in relationship with me. We'll be praying afterwards. If anyone this morning feels like they want to come and hear more about what it's like to be in a relationship with Christ, then we'd really encourage you to come down and pray with us. If you are a Christian today, we're actually going to be doing communion soon. This is pointing back the same way that the Jewish people used to do Passover yearly as a remembrance of the time where death was meant for them and actually because of a sacrifice it passed them, we today take the bread and the cup remembering the fact that we were headed for death and actually because of God we now can live in life.